Thank you very much for the kind introduction and thank you for, for having us all here. It's been a wonderful day and my lecture today will in part be a reflection on the thoughts that we've all shared. One of, um, one of the premises of, of this talk, in fact, is that freedom is something that you do together and not something that you do by yourself. And I think the same holds for, for truth. My, my historical premise is that we are still in the 1970s. So the, um, for those of you who did not experience the 1970s, and there are a heartening number of you here, so thank you for being here. Uh, what I mean by the idea that we're still in the 1970s is that I believe that we are still in something that you could think of as the long normalization. So in Czech, the word normalizacja has a very clear sense. Normalization means the period after 1968, after the Prague Spring was crushed, after the arrival of the Warsaw Pact invasion, the period in which the Czechoslovak Communist Party was, was forced to submit, in which it's, it had to take responsibility for, for pulling back on its own reforms, and in which Czechoslovak society was slowly normalized in the sense of conformism, but here comes the mystery and the interesting part, conformism to something which is itself not defined. So no one believes in communism anymore. No one believes in the bright future anymore, and that includes the party. And so conformism means following the line, but the line itself has no substance. So it's conformism with conformism. That's what normalization means, and normalization lasts for a long time. From the late 1960s um, into the late 1980s, it, it, it forms people. Now, my premise here and the reason, one of the reasons why I feel authorized bringing Havel and Zelensky together is that normalization didn't really come to an end in 1989. That in 1989, we can see, of course, a moment of important political transformation, but I think we can also see a certain amount of delusion in our own minds or in the Western mind about how much things actually changed. I would submit that Leonid Brezhnev, who is rarely cited as a master thinker, is in fact the master thinker, not just of the 1970s, but also of our own time. I think his two political maneuvers, which are easy to dismiss or perhaps are not even remembered, are, are actually a very good, uh, provide a very good general sense for the politics of our own fading democracies. What do I have in mind? I have in mind Brezhnev's idea that there is no alternative. So it was Brezhnev who pioneers the idea that there is no alternative. In the 1970s, Brezhnev's claim about Soviet socialism was that it was the best of all possible systems in the sense that there were no other possible systems. So this makes of Margaret Thatcher a plagiarist. So of course, Margaret Thatcher was talking about capitalism and not communism, but the idea that there are no alternatives is actually fundamentally the same idea. Brezhnev's other idea was to replace the future with the past. So you no longer have a glorious vision of a socialist future, what do you do? You replace it for nostalgia for a time when the country was great, which in the case of the Soviet Union was 1945 and the victory over Nazi Germany. Under Brezhnev from the early 70s through the, through the early 80s, the, the, the cult of the past, the cult of that victory, and slowly I would also suggest a cult of death, replaced the notion of a future. So you trade off without really mentioning what you're doing, implicitly the future for the past. That, of course, is also a major move which has been made in our fading democracies, the idea that the future of the country is actually the past. 
that what we really should be doing is trying to find a moment in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, wherever it might be, where we were great or where we were innocent. And we should be thinking, instead of a future, be thinking about finding our way back to the past. The other feature of this long normalization that I have in mind um, is forgetting about the Earth. The Earth itself in this long normalization is irrelevant. Uh, from the socialist point of view or the Brezhnevite point of view, the late Soviet point of view, everything is supposed to be about the modes of production. But somehow we can talk about the modes of production, the technology, without remembering what the modes of production are actually doing to the earth, which is exhausting it, which of course was a major theme of the dissidents of the 1970s and 1980s. Our own realism, our own capitalism, tends to make the same mistake, that there aren't environmental problems that won't somehow automatically be solved. So in all of these ways, I think that we are still living in a world of normalization, and, and we're still living in a world um, that Havel was trying to describe in his writings of the 1970s. So in this sense, as I say, I, I want to treat 1989 not so much as a break, but actually as a moment of continuity, where very many important things were actually, if you like, transferred from east to west, but not the things that we wanted to have transferred from east to west. Okay, so... Thinking about freedom and truth then, Havel and Zelensky, I'm bringing Havel and Zelensky together and my authorization for doing this admittedly is, is a bit personal and, and, and whimsical that this is a conference about Havel and I've recently been in contact with Zelensky and we're all thinking a good deal about Zelensky. But I think there's, there's, there's more to it than that. These men are of course a couple of generations apart Havel was born in, in 1936. Zelensky's father was born in 1947. So they're a couple of generations apart. But I would nevertheless make the case that for both men, the confrontation with the normalization of the 1970s is essential to what's essential to, to their achievements, their conceptual achievements and their political achievements. Of course, in, in, in a different way, uh, Havel is reacting directly to the 1970s. He treats the 1970s as a paradigmatic, paradigmatic moment of the crisis of modernization in general. And I think it turns out that, that he's right. Um, for Zelensky, this is obviously a bit different. Zelensky has, has, has a father who read the dissidents of the 1970s, to be sure. But I think the more direct connection for Zelensky actually passes through Putin. I think Vladimir Putin is, should be understood as a child of the Brezhnevian 1970s. And that Vladimir, Vladimir Putin has done is that he's taken the Brezhnevian idea that the future of the country should really be its past, and he simply pushed it and pushed it further and further, making the cult of 1945 more and more of a cult of death rather than a cult of victory, but also pushing, pushing Russian history further and further back into the past ever more implausibly, but somehow also ever more violently, so that you get to the point where Putin's interpretation of what happened a thousand years ago becomes, in his mind at least, the justification for beginning a war of destruction against a neighboring nation. But I also want to make the case that the Russian war of destruction against the neighboring nation can be understood in terms of normalization in the following way. The idea of destroying Ukraine is that the Ukrainians are really Russians. That's the idea. The idea is that they don't know it, but they're really Russians. Or the people, at the, the, the people who, who think that they're Ukrainians, somehow they shouldn't really be there. They, they have been implanted by the Habsburgs, or maybe they were implanted by the Poles, or maybe they were implanted by the Germans, or maybe they were implanted by the Jews. 
or maybe they were implanted by the Europeans, or maybe they were implanted by the Americans, or maybe by all of them. But somehow these people who think they're European, Ukrainians are artificial. They're not real. They don't actually belong in history. So they simply have to be removed. That's what's meant by the Russification of Ukraine. That's what's meant. But you'll notice in this, there is no positive definition of what it means to be Russian at all. The notion is simply that if you strip away these, 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 uh, these incursions into Ukrainian history, Russia will emerge. But there's no positive definition. There's no virtue in being Russian in any of this. There's no substance at all to being Russian. Russian is simply defined as what is normal. And that's the word that's actually used. So for example, Margareta Simonyan, who's one of the most important propagandists, when she tries to criticize the Ukrainians, what she says is, well, what they're doing is not normal. And that's really all she can think of to say, and I find that very interesting, because what it means is that Russian is nor the way we live in Russia is normal. We're not going to defend it. We have no way of defending it. And, by the and they never do, by the way. They're they almost never actually say why, why it's good to be Russian. Um, and and by I mean, just by the way, this is why I think that the war in Ukraine is much better understood as a Russian identity crisis than it is as a Ukrainian identity crisis. I think this is one more way in which Russian rhetoric has led us astray, or it's one more example of Russian transference, right? One more example of, of the Russians pushing onto other people a problem that they in fact have themselves. But be that as it may, what I'm trying to suggest is that what Volodymyr Zelensky is confronting is a violent form of normalization, where you're supposed to conform to something, but what you're conforming to is just whatever power says you're supposed to conform to. There's no positive thing. There's no positive ideal at all. It's just kind of normality for the sake of normality, where normality is just defined as normality. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just, circu it's just circular. And another thing that unites these, these two figures as I understand them, is the way that they have been able to shake other people out of this sense of normalization, right? The, the way that, for example, and, and Wendy mentioned this earlier, um, a way that, for example, Havel's speech to a joint session of Congress in 1990 um, grasped people and gave them the sense that something new was happening, right? When Havel says before the, before the, the joint session of Congress that, that, um, that, that Essence precedes existence. Oh, Marcy writes about this. No one knows what he's talking about, but nevertheless, it's fresh, it's new. No one's ever spoken like that before. It, it gave people, perhaps more than any other moment, it gave the Americans a sense that there was a revolution going on, that something fresh was happening. I would suggest there was a similar moment in Kiev in February of 2022, when Zelensky chose to stay. That was also a moment for Americans when it was clear that something undefined, but something quite powerful had happened. That something that was not normal, something that was not expected had taken place. Something which our own parameters of understanding were not really sufficient for us to grasp, but something which we, which we, had, which we had to grasp. So essence precedes existence and, 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 uh, and Zelensky remaining. I think Zelensky remaining is also a good example of what essence preceding existence actually means. Because if, if everything were only about existence, if existence really came first, if existence were the only thing, then of course he should have fled. Of course he should have fled. The fact that he did not flee, the fact that he and, not, and so many other millions of people chose to stay and remain is a kind of example of essence preceding existence. Because if everything were about existence, if everything were about the larger forces, 
then by 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 then he certainly he certainly should have fled. And I just want to make clear how this connects to the idea of a long normalization. In the long normalization, the idea is that certain things are inevitable. Socialism is inevitable, or capitalism is inevitable, but it's the inevitability which is important. And why is it inevitable? Larger forces, larger structural forces. Larger structural forces must bring about socialism, or larger structural forces must bring about capitalism. Capitalism as a larger structural force must bring about freedom, right? So in, that is a way of saying that existence comes first. The things that are out there in the world that you're born into, they come first, and they're going to automatically make you free. So don't you worry, because you're born into America, America has capitalism, and these larger structures are going to make you free. What is that saying? It's saying that existence precedes essence. But if existence precedes essence, if freedom is just a matter of the larger structures doing things for you, what happens when the larger structures turn out not to be doing things for you? Then you are not only not free in a superficial sense, you're deeply not free because you've never developed the habits of noticing what the larger forces are, of working against the larger forces, of making the larger forces in some sense work for you. So this is why I think it's so very important that we understand all of this as a, as a kind of resistance to normalization and why I'm taking seriously Zelensky saying, President Tut, the president is here as an example of essence preceding existence. So one reason why the, the Havel and Zelensky seem extraordinary has to do with performance. And what I wanna make a case for here is the two senses of the word performance that are very important for both of these men as we think about truth and freedom. The way that I'd like to think about this is as a contest between literary criticism and literature. So a lot of you who are going to college, and again, thank you for being here or humoring your professors or whatever is motivating you, I'll try to make it worth your while. But the, um, a, lot of pe a lot of people who come to college and major in English literature think, well, okay, now we're gonna be reading great works of literature, and instead find out that you're gonna be reading, you know, literary criticism for four years. And that can be, I'm, I'm, pa I'm, pa no, I'm, pa I'm pausing for my colleagues to get mad at me. <laughs> so, and, and that can be disappointing. That can be disappointing. And I, I, that's one way to think about what's going on here. What, what, the, what, the, what the Russians like to do is actually based on literary criticism. The Russians are literary critics. What they do is they say all that is solid melts into air, right? Everything is fragmentary. Nothing ever actually fits together. At the end of the day, there is no truth. You know, and if you think otherwise, we're going to laugh at you. We're going to sneer at you. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna sneer at you from our postmodern black uniforms, right? And so there's a certain kind of laughter that goes with this, like the postmodern laughter that you, oh, you don't really believe that, do you, right? So Russia weaponizes that. Russia weaponizes, politicizes literary, a certain kind of literary criticism. Whereas in the case of both Havel and Zelensky, you get to see literature. You get to see literature. It's like all of a sudden in your English class, you didn't have to read that work, of, and they gave you Hamlet to read instead. And you think, oh my goodness, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. This is actually good stuff, right? Or you, know, or you got to read, I don't know, you, know, you got to read a good novelist instead of whatever it is that you've been assigned. And you realize, actually, I really prefer this. This is really better. I really like literature. I think with Havel and Zelensky, it's a bit like that. That you, when, you when you get the contrast between literary criticism and literature, you say, yes, 
I want the literature. I, I prefer the literature. But when the literature is not there, then the literary criticism seems very persuasive, right? When it's not there. But as soon as somebody gives you the literature, then you say, I prefer the literature. And you're not sure why, right? Like when Zelensky and Havel appear on the scene, you're not sure why they seem so appealing because you have, I mean, let's be honest, you haven't been reading enough of the literature. But as soon as they appear, then you think, aha, something has happened and I need to figure out why it is that this is so special. Because of course, literature does all the work of literary criticism. I mean, it, it ha everything that's in literary criticism has to come from literature in the first place. That's the nature of criticism. And you know, in literature, you can find all the sophisticated points about the fragmentary and so on, subjective positionality. You can find that all in the literature. It's all there, right? You can, if you're interested in these things, you know, you can read, you can read Julian Barnes. You can, you can, you can, you know, you can find the same things in the plot of a novel, but with characters, right? But with characters, with characters who have roles, and the role here is very important. So Zelensky and Havel are both obviously performing roles. They're performing roles as, for example, presidents of their country. That is a role, and, and you perform it. But when I say perform it, do I mean that in the light sense of the word perform or in the heavy sense of the word perform, right? When I say that something is just a performance, I might be, I might be saying that it's not real, it's light, it's fictional, it's not very significant. But if I say he really performed or she really performed actually means something quite different. I mean, an achievement was taking place. And what I'm trying to suggest here is that the first sense of performance actually blurs into the second sense of performance. Um, in, all, in many spheres of life, I believe that's true, actually. I'll just leave that to your imagination. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, what's, what's interesting about being video recorded is that like, the jokes are recorded, but not your laughter. <laughs> so no one will know, because I'm mic'd and you're not, so no one will know whether you laughed at that joke, right? So you're safe, actually. You can laugh as much as you want at the sex jokes. Okay, so, so, the, so as, you, as you perform in one way, you begin to perform in the other way, right? So Zelensky, night after night after night, giving an improvised evening political speech in front of a white wall, night after night after night, like each time it's a performance in the first sense, right? It's an actor performing, but also, you know, night after night after night, that is labor, that is work, that is really hard work, and doing that together, um, doing that with together with the people over and over and over again, um, creates a certain kind of reality, and you might ask yourself, well, actually, what is more real than that? What is, what is more real than that? The first kind of performance becomes becomes the second. And this leads me to the, the, second, the second kind of point I want to make, which, is, um, which I'm going to think of as, as being there. And a lot of this is referring to discussions that we had earlier today, but um, being there. If essence precedes existence, right? Essence precedes existence. Okay, let's take that. What, is that, what does that mean? Um, what, is it, what does it mean to say essence precedes existence? Uh, I, 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 I went over this before. But I'm going to say it again because it strikes me as being really important. If we believe that our freedom is a matter of larger forces, then we're not really believing in freedom, right? If we believe that freedom is a matter of larger forces, we cannot be believing in freedom, just logically speaking. If you think, because the moment you think freedom is given, your freedom is taken away. 
but just what freedom is has to do with apprehending the larger forces and working with them and against them somehow. If you think the larger forces are just working for you, then essentially you're lost and it shouldn't take an invasion to make that, to make that clear. But in the case of Zelensky in particular, if it were all about the larger forces, what would he do in February of 2022? Of course he would flee, right? And why was it that Americans took for granted that Zelensky would flee. Why, why was that? That almost all of you, I'm gonna exclude myself from this because I was on television saying that he wouldn't and everyone made fun of me, but why, why no, I mean, so uh, that's true, but also, I mean, I, 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 did, I did that and then there was, a, there was a class at Yale in which security advisors from both the Trump and the Obama administrations came and the, and the clip of me saying Zelensky is going to stay was shown, and both the Trump people and the Obama people said, you know, with all due respect to Professor Snyder, whose history books we respect very much, he's completely wrong, right? Um, why was that? Why would it be that Trump people and Obama people and Americans in general would think that he's gonna flee? Why is that? Uh, because, I mean, one can give little examples, but I think the fundamental reason is we think that existence precedes essence. We think it's about the structural factors. And if the structural factors turn out not to be on your side, you better just get the hell out of Dodge, right? That's the thing. If you believe it's all about the structural factors, if it's all about existence and not essence. It's all about the structural factors. If the structural factors are against you, of course you're gonna flee. What else is there for you to do? And that's how Americans thought. Americans thought. Not just Russians, but Americans thought that way. And that gives us something to ask ourselves about. It's why it seems so remarkable that Zelensky stayed. Right, and why it seemed kind of mysterious that he stayed. Um, but I think this is what, you know, this is the deep significance of Zelensky going in front of, you know, go doing, doing the selfie video and saying, President Tut, the president is here, right? That, that he's, he's, he's doing this thing, which is, of course, so why is he doing that? Why is he saying the president is here? He's telling the truth against Russian propaganda. The idea of Russian propaganda is to play on our sense that of course he would leave. Of course existence precedes essence. Of course this man, you know, he's just this meaningless comedian, this Jew, of course he's gonna run, right? Of course he's gonna run. That's what Russian propaganda says, and of course that's what we were tending to believe. So what does Zelensky do? He gets out and he films himself saying, no, the president is here, and my, you know, my friends are here, my friends, my crew is here, right? My group, my group is here. So it, it's against, Russian propaganda, it's true, and it's against Russian propaganda, but the deeper sense of it is this sense of, of, um, of, of, of what Havel called, I think, living in truth. Not only Havel, I know, but Havel called living in truth, in that what you're saying is not only true in the sense of true or false, but it's true in the sense of it's something you're living by, right? Because just going out on the, just being in Kiev, just going out on the street was taking corporeal risk. At the time that he said that, there were assassins in Kiev. At the time that he said that, there were bombs and missiles falling on Kiev. At the time he said that, the operational plan of the Russian army was to physically exterminate him and several hundred other people who were at the top of the Ukrainian state. So it's living in truth in the sense of taking risk to say things that are, that are true. Um, Milan mentioned um, the, 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 the students that I taught in prison. What the, the phrase they use for this is, is, is walking the talk, which I, which I rather like, walking, walking the talk. So when I talked to Zelensky about this, and, and I, used, I used the phrase living in truth, which in Czech is um, 
in Ukrainian, you know, his response, his immediate response was, Takiest, um, which I assume that everybody who speaks Slavic languages can understand. Takiest, like that's the way that it is. That's, that's exactly what it is. That's the, thing, that's the thing that we should be talking about. Now, the next, the next way I want to think about freedom and truth with our, with our two characters is in terms of a kind of rehabilitation of the notion of the choiceless choice. So usually when we talk about choiceless choices, we're talking about something quite negative. We're talking about a totalitarian situation where you've been pushed into a situation where, sure, you have alternatives, but neither of them really seems like a choice. Like you, can, you, know, you, can, you can allow these people to die. You can betray this person or this person, but you're going to be betraying someone. You know, you can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can help your friend, but at the cost of hurting your other friend. You can, you can sacrifice yourself for a cause, but only at the cost of leaving your family without a breadwinner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? What I'm trying to suggest is that there's also a positive sense of choiceless choice. And what I mean is getting into a situation where you think you can only do one thing, and that the, but in, a po- in the positive sense that your life as a free person has brought you to this point. So for example, um, Havel and signing Charter 77, which in all kinds of ways, as we talked about earlier today, is an, is an, un, is an unpredictable thing. And here I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna say something nice about American culture because I think it's important because it's been kind of an unbalanced. So the, a nice thing about American culture is American culture generates a lot of unpredictability for the rest of the world. Right? So when Havel signs Charter 77, as not everybody here knows, um, Charter 77 is, a, is, is one of the movements for human rights in the mid-1970s in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but the, 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 immediate, the immediate precipitating cause of it is uh, the, the persecution of a band, a rock and roll band called the Plastic People of the Universe. And you know, if it's not for, I mean, this is my Go America moment, but if it's not for American culture, there isn't rock and roll, right? If, I mean, that's... Right? No, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna claim this one. I'm not, I'm not gonna get these, these skeptical looks from the checks in the second row. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Rock and roll is rock and roll comes from rhythm and blues or what was called race music, and it has to do with, a, with a, with an African American cultural synthesis, which has to do with African Americans migrating to the north and, and encounters with, with, with whites. That's where rock and roll comes from. And that particular cultural mixture leads to unpredictability all, all around the world, not just in Havel's case, right? Not just in, not just in Havel's case. Um, so, so, you know, and, and if, you look at, if you look at, I'll be done with this riff in a second, but if you look at the culture of the war in Ukraine, right? What is the music that is, what is, the music that is being used by Ukrainians to make their points? It's almost always... American music, right? It's almost always American music, and it works. I mean, sometimes it works in ways where, you know, so for example, when the Ukrainian army um, uh, recovered a modern Russian tank, and they, so they filmed themselves, reco- they filmed the first modern Russian tank, which they had recovered, and then the camera moves over, and it shows that the first modern Russian tank is pulling a second modern Russian tank, which they have also recovered. And then you realize that the soundtrack to this video clip is Britney Spears singing, Oops, I Did It Again. <laughs> um, which, is, which is clearly in the category of so wrong as to be right. Um, but wouldn't happen, but wouldn't happen without American, wouldn't happen without American culture, right? And this is, I mean, this, I'll now end this digression, but it's a very interesting moment in Ukraine where 
the Ukrainian 40-somethings can mess around with both Russian and American culture. At the same, that's, in 20 years, that probably will not be true anymore. But now they can, and they are, and it's really fascinating. But my point here is about, is about, um, is about, is about choiceless choices at the, end of, of, at the end of unpredictability, right? So Havel in, 19, Havel in 1977, one would not have necessarily predicted that when you know, the, blues, the blues become rock and roll and so on, this is going to lead to uh, Havel you know, going to a trial in 1977 and joining the human rights movement. But from the point of view of Havel, it seemed like the thing that he had to do, right? So being free can get you into a situation where you think there's something you have to do. Essence precedes existence. Again, if it's all about existence, there's never anything you have to do. You can always get the hell out. You can always run if it's only about existence. For, for, for Zelensky, I mean, when I, so when I talked to Zelensky about February of 2022 and his decision to stay, he said something very similar. He said, um, he said I would cease to respect myself or I could not have done otherwise. And, you know, 10 or 12 variants of that. And what he meant was not, of course, that he physically couldn't have gone. What he meant was that he didn't feel like he would be himself anymore if he left. And that, that, that general point is, it's not about a split second, right? It's, like not, it's not like a dramatic movie. In it's not like Hollywood where like you're faced with this thing and suddenly you become a hero because of the aliens. It's not like that. It's more that you become the person that you are over time because of the accumulation of choices that you make. And at a certain point, you come into be, right? You come to be, you come, you come into being, you exist, right, as, as an agent. And as that person, as that person who acts, in a certain situation, you can't do anything else than what you do. And that's a sign of freedom, right? That's a sign of freedom because you've built yourself up freely on the basis of these moral choices so that in a certain situation, you don't feel like you can do, you don't feel like you can do anything else. The unfree person can always run. The unfree person can always run, but the free person can't always run, right? Essence precedes existence. Which brings me to um, a point that we were talking about earlier, which is um, Pravda y Laska. Um, truth, truth and love. Truth and love. Because this business of acc accumulating choices and that creating a character, and that character meaning that you exist, um, so where does, where does this possibility of choice come from? How do you actually become that kind of person who, 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 who can be this, right? Because when you're, you're an infant, you're not that person. You know, when you're 10, you're not that person. 12, you're not that person. When, at what point do you become that person? And interestingly, Zelensky, I found this, I found this very touching, and we're now, we're now in the territory of, of, of kindness, and like those of you who are tough, angry men and don't want to hear it, like the doors are there. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 Zelensky immediately on this question went into his parents. So immediately starts talking about his parents, and he says, he says um, I love them because I am the way that I am. And I love them regardless of what happens, right? And what does he mean, what does he mean by that? Why is, why, is that? why is that so interesting? I mean, on the one hand, it's interesting because he's acknowledging that without his parents, he would not have become the person who could be doing these things that we, we might want to evaluate what he does, does in February 22nd. It's just a split second. It's just a moment as one man against the world. But that that's not how he sees it at all. That he understands that there are other people who are involved in making him the person that he is, right? So that, you know, regardless of what happens, I love them. That's very interesting. That's very interesting because we see now that there are conditions to becoming that person. Um, and we also get it. We're getting a hint of how 
essence comes to be. Because if I'm saying essence precedes existence, that's all very nice. And I've said it so many times that I'm sure it's like, you know, you're going to get tattoos after this. But, but, um, uh, but, but, but if that's true, when and how does the essence actually emerge? Right? You can't just will it into being. You can't just say, I exist. You, know, you can't just say, I'm a hero. Right? That's ludicrous. So how does the essence come into being? When and, what, when and under what conditions? And Zelensky's given us a clue about this when he talks about his parents. When his, first, when his first response, his first instinct, like very heartfelt, very instantaneous, was to start talking about his parents. And it leads me to a point which he has made in, in several connections now, which is about the relationship between freedom and security. So in the Anglo-Saxon discourse and the American discourse, we tend to move towards a position which says, oh, freedom and security, they are opposites. So I'm gonna tell you that you're unsafe and you're gonna give up your freedom. And you know, the world is just a tough place where you gotta make tough choices. You face these tragic situations and they face them all the time, but if you're tough and you know the way the world really is, you're gonna be ready to give up your freedom the moment I tell you to. Right? That's basically the way it works. There's an irreconcilable clash it's the way it is. Life's just built that way. If, you're, if we're in danger, we've got to give up freedom. Okay. But what if that's not true? I mean, what if it's usually not true? What if it's fundamentally not true? What if most of the time, freedom and security actually work well together? So Zelensky is giving the example of freedom and security working together, specific example of liberated villages in Kharkiv Oblast. Right? If you liberate a village, the people there are, ooh, look, they're both more free and they're more secure at the same time. I would venture to say that's not a trivial or unworldly example. It's a very important example. And you could extend it to things like overthrowing dictators or leaving abusive relationships or getting out of prison or whatever it might be, that you're both, you're both more free and more secure at the same time. That happens a lot. Conceptually, when I asked him about this, he said, again, I'm quoting, he said, uh, the... The, the, um, when I quote, I have to use my glasses. He says that the deprivation of choice means the lack of security, and the lack of security means the deprivation of choice, right? So he went so far as to define freedom in terms of security and to define security in terms, in terms of freedom, which, which raises the, 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 the broader question of what it actually takes to live in truth. Right? So if you get to the point where you think it's, it's good for people to live in truth, like pe we should be the kind of people who build up character and then when we face an existential situation, we know who we are and we can do, we can do no other than the thing that we do. But how do you get to that place? And here you see the link between freedom and security through the parents. I don't just mean dramatic security situations, through the parents. How do you get parents who have time for you? How do you create a situation where there are other people who have time for you when you're a child? How are you raised in such a way that you feel <clears throat> secure? How is that provided for so that you can be secure and therefore be free? If the two things are connected, they're not just connected in the moment, they're connected over the course of an entire life. So logically, the idea of living in truth wouldn't just mean living in truth at the moment where you make the dramatic decision. It would also mean providing security all the way up so that we have as many people as possible who might be able to do this kind of thing. So um, if, if, you know, to live in truth, where um, the, the uh, Michal Jantowski is here, or no, it was Jacques Rupnik who, who, who was citing um, Shaman, where, you know, it, 
is you, right? Like, I'm, I live. What I'm saying is, like, I live is already a lot, right? I live is already a lot. Uh, when I was teaching, I was teaching not just Havel, but I was teaching, I was teaching a class about the philosophy of freedom in prison, and uh, one, of, one of my students in one of his papers proposed what he called a survival, de a survival definition of freedom, which I think is a pretty good place to start, right? Not just that you're alive, but you're thinking about what life would be. So I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm saying in the phrase, live in truth, the live part is also very important. Like, how do you get to the point where people are living in a way which is where they can consider themselves to be secure and therefore also be free? Now, this in turn, the idea that security and freedom actually work together suggests a larger point, which is my next point about pluralism, which I think is something that brings Havel and Zelensky together. Where by pluralism, I don't actually mean anything grand. And you can talk about pluralism in a very grand way. Like, for example, I have the value of loyalty, but I also have the value of honesty. And so I find myself in situations where I may not be completely loyal or completely honest because the two things might, might clash, right? And I have, to, I have to work very hard to get all these values to reconcile. That's, that's the Kai conceptual version of pluralism um, that you find in Isaiah Berlin or in Leszek Kołakowski, and it's very important and very interesting. But in the case of Havel, it's much more, it's much more down to earth the pluralism. In the case of Zelensky as well, it's more this kind of vocation, like the calling, who you really are. That you want to brew good beer, okay, right? You want to play music, fine. And by, and by the way, I was really, I mean, I mentioned this earlier today, but I was really struck that when I was having this back and forth with Zelensky, this is what he said. He said, okay, you want to be free. You have different values. There's a pluralism of values. You want to play guitar. I thought, okay, that's uncanny. <laughs> that's, that's uncanny you know, that, that's, that that's his example. Um, like the thing that you really are is the person who wants to play guitar. It's not that your values are so glamorous. They don't have to be glamorous. It's just a question of who you actually are, that you, that you should be able to be unpredictably who you actually are. And the, the way that Zelensky talked about this business of a vocation or a calling or authentically being you is he talked about um, extending yourself to be yourself. That you, know, that you have, like, in order to be free, you have to extend yourself. You have, to, you have to create capacities. The things that you want to be able to do, you have to be able to do. And they don't have to be glamorous things. That's not the point at all. They just have to be the things which are really about, they're really about you. And he says, you know, he says quoting again, this is, this is also freedom. Or as the philosopher Edith Stein put it, the creation of capacity also belongs to freedom. So if this is pluralism, what is this pluralism against. What is this pluralism against? Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's against? It's against what Zelensky called the warm bath. So Zelensky talks about how when you're in a bath, I always sort of think about being recorded. Okay, you're in a bath, um, and, and it's a warm bath, and you sort of close your eyes, and maybe they're, maybe, it's, maybe they're bubbles, who knows? Imagine bubbles. And, but the point is that you kind of close your, maybe your rubber ducky is there. You, you close your eyes, more of you have rubber duckies than maybe I would have thought. Um, you, you close your eyes and you're just in the warm bath and in that moment, everything feels right. There are no contradictions, right? Everything somehow seems to flow together the way that life really is not. So when, when Zelensky talked about the warm bath, what he was talking about was actually Russian propaganda. He was talking about television. He was talking about the way 
television or propaganda can make you feel. That there aren't really any rough edges in life. Your side is always right. There's nothing that you really have to do. Everything is fine. And you know, the moment you get out of the warm bath, suddenly it's uncomfortable, it's cold, you know, there are rough corners, you might bump into something, you might slip and fall. Right? This is all his, all his analogy, but I think it's a good one. Because they, when you get out of the warm bath is when you feel the pluralism. Right? You feel that like, other people value other, there are other people in the world, first of all. Um, and second of all, they have different values than you do. And third of all, you're going to bump up against their different values. And that's what life is actually about or, sh or should actually be about. But in the warm bath, we're all atomized. We're all alone. Right? There, aren't any, there, aren't, we're, we're, there are no value clashes because there are no other people. Nothing is challenging us. Um, we, feel, we feel comfortable. He's really talking about television. And of course, Havel is also... I mean, you know, we can make it glamorous, but what is Havel really talking about? Havel is really saying that the Czechs watch too much television, right? Havel really, really doesn't like television, which I used to think was kind of comical, like, oh, what's wrong with a little, you know, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley? Um, those were like, those are the shows that were on in America. Okay, forget it, forget it. Love Boat, anyone for Love Boat? Um, the, but, uh, but, but, but what Havel was really against actually was the television serial. He was against, you know, he was against the, he was against that, that version of Prague where at, I forget what time it was, but let's say 7 p.m. in the evening, you know, all, everybody on the tram was talking about like the next episode in the next serial. He was against that. And I think it's, you know, it's not, it's not a coincidence that when I asked Zelensky about engaging the Russian propagandists directly, he did what I thought he would do. He said, you know, he, he didn't even bother to like, talk about engaging them. You know, his, he's all about telling a different story. He's not about engaging disinformation. It's about literature. If you are literature, you don't engage the literary criticism. I mean, very it happens, but it's very rare that a novel is actually about literary criticism. If you're gonna write the novel, you write the novel, right? So, but what he said was, you don't engage directly. It would be like engaging a TV serial, which is what you don't do. So again, this sort, of, this sort of uncanny resemblance. But the, point, the larger point here is that pluralism is against the things which separate us and get us into this state of comfort where we never have to confront, you know, we never confront what we might stand for, what we really think about. A permanent, we're all in separate warm, warm baths. Okay, if you insist, you can think about that as like the scene in the Matrix where they figure, okay, good, all right. Just in case you needed the Matrix reference, there it was, I gave it to you. Um, the Matrix was a movie in the late 20th century. Okay, good. Um, so, at, 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 a, at what point, um, so, what do we, so what do we now have? What I've been trying to do, um, maybe, maybe immodestly, is, um, is, is, is try to speak truth about freedom with the help of these two people. And with the help of these two people and the help of lots of other people, a couple of things that Zelensky said when I was talking to him, which I really liked, when we were talking about traditions and what it means to belong to a tradition, he said, you never actually speak yourself. The thinkers who are greater than you speak through you. And he said, as soon as someone tells you that you're a great speaker, you have to stop and check yourself because you're never a great speaker. It's only other people speaking through you, right? which I thought... I don't even think Churchill would have said that, by the way, <laughs> right? Um, like, that, like that moment, which, which reminds me, of course, of, of Havel and the kind of self-abnegation and the achio and like, you know, the, the checking oneself all the time, right? Checking oneself all the time, um, which, by the way, is the last line in the Plastic People of the Universe song. Um, 
uh, uh, sorry, of the, of the Zappa song, which the Plastic People are named after. The last, at least sometimes as it was performed live, the last line is, go home, check yourself. You think we're talking about someone else. So truth about freedom. What would the truth about freedom be as with the help of these, with the help of these two people? Um, the, the truth about freedom, I think, would be that there is a conceptual and a historical way out of this long normalization that we're still in, um, that it would involve, it involves values that are small but are unpredictable and which accumulate into being a kind of unpredictable self, that pluralism exists, pluralism exists above all in life itself, that in Havel's terms, we have a kind of vocation or a kind of calling, the things that we really care about, the secret life of society, the things that we, you know, the unpredictable, maybe slightly embarrassing things that actually matter, not the things that we say that matter, but the things that actually matter to us. Um, or in, 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 Zelensky's, in Zelensky's terms, that you, you apply yourself, you extend yourself, you, you become slightly more than you might have been otherwise um, because you're called to do something. And that this, this version of freedom requires security, that freedom and security actually work together. And by security, I don't mean, I mean, of course, I mean Ukraine winning the war. I mean that. But I also mean security in, much, in a much broader sense, beginning with the cradle, right? Beginning with the labor of freedom begins after the labor of a mother. That, that, that security begins with, we have to think about family situations, and Zelensky helps with this, and what makes a family possible. That a nuclear family can't possibly be enough. That freedom, in other words, is not about chopping us up into individuals as quickly as possible. It's about creating conditions in which we can be secure because only conditions in which we are secure in the broadest sense are the conditions in which we can be free. And that love and kindness, to refer to categories which came up you know, somewhat awkwardly, but I appreciate Milan putting them in here, that love and kindness have something to do with this. That we can't just think mechanically about the reproduction of freedom, because if we're not thinking about you know love and time and friendship and 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 uh, and family um, and categories like this, you can't communicate freedom across generations. And if it's not communicated across generations, it's not going to exist at all. That in this notion of freedom, there will be choiceless choices, but in a positive sense. That if we if we go through life accumulating character on the base on, on as a result of a series of moral choices. Um, feeling that we are secure, uh, we might get to a point where we feel we can do no other, but because we are free, because we are free, because we are free, our, our values um, lead, us, lead us to understand a situation as being a moment where we have to do the thing that we have to do. And that all of this involves performance, right? It involves performance that you have to, or to quote Simone Weil, um, Simone Weil talks about practice and grace. So you perform in one way and you can perform in a different way. You practice until you achieve grace. That freedom isn't just a matter of yes or no, up and down, here I am, but it's a matter of practice, 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 practice. And eventually you reach that point where you do exist. You do exist in the sense of existence preceding essence. And then you might find yourself in that situation where there's only one thing that you can do. So my performance is at an end. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.